one of the most rousing campaign speeches that I've ever heard includes the words, if I'm elected, I will purge the kingdom. My administration will release us from our spiritual Babylon. My administration will bring down false idols in high places. Those words come from none other than Linus. Linus Van Pelt from the Charlie Brown cartoons. Particularly, it comes from a Peanuts episode entitled, You're Not Elected, Charlie Brown. Now, Christians are pretty familiar with the fact that Peanuts cartoons oftentimes have biblical references in them, right? You think of Linus quoting from memory a good portion of Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas episode, and there's other examples that could be given. But then there's the You're Not Elected Charlie Brown episode. Now, when you heard that, you probably didn't think even for a second that that concerned Charlie Brown struggling with the doctrine of election. That's not what's going on in that episode. Interestingly, that episode centers upon a student body election where Linus and another student are running for student body president. Uh, Lucy had done the math a little bit earlier on in the episode and she saw that Charlie Brown wouldn't win if he tried to run, so he didn't run. But if you watch the episode, interestingly enough, it all comes down to one deciding vote. All the votes are cast... But then one person has one deciding vote, and with their vote, somebody will be the student body president. That's how some people view the biblical doctrine of election. When you hear about the doctrine of election, when you hear it talked about, it's not uncommon to hear somebody reference the story of a preacher who proclaimed, I believe in the doctrine of election. God cast his vote for me. Satan cast his vote against me. And I cast the deciding vote. But is that what the Bible teaches concerning the doctrine of election? And to be clear, the Bible talks about the elect, the chosen. The Bible uses the word election. You just read through the New Testament, you read through an English translation, you're going to see the word elect quite a bit. Eclectos is the Greek word. You might see another word, election, a different Greek word that's used there. But you go through the New Testament, you're going to see this word pop up in your English translations quite a bit. Jesus talks about the elect. Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus said that many are called, few are chosen. The Greek word there, eclectos, few are elect. Jesus spoke about the days of great tribulation being shortened for the sake of the elect. Matthew 24, verse 22. He spoke about false Christs and false prophets rising and showing great signs to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, verse 24. That last statement, by the way, speaks to how strong the delusions would be. But it wouldn't be strong enough to have God's people enter into apostasy and fall away from the truth and not be his own. Jesus spoke about angels being sent out to gather the elect from the four winds of the earth, Matthew 24, 31. Jesus spoke about God avenging his elect to cry out to him day and night, Luke 18, verse 7. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, states that no one can raise a charge or bring a charge against God's elect because it is God who justifies There's other uses of the word elect, but then we also see the word election, 
We see the word election, different Greek words, same idea. Romans 9.11 talks about election being not of works, but of him who calls. In Romans chapter 11, verse 5, you think of the Jewish nation. Although the Jewish nation, by and large, had rejected the Messiah, not everyone did, the first believers were Jewish. When you think about the day of Pentecost, for instance, thousands of Jewish people came to trust in Christ, and Paul described them as a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans 11, verse 5. There's plenty of other examples that can be given, whether it's referring to elect or election being found in our New Testaments. It's not like an obscure word that's just found once in one late manuscript or something like that. It's found quite a bit, and it's found in the earliest of manuscripts. In like manner, Peter called the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Going back a little bit, Paul identified the Colossian Christians as the elect of God, Colossians 3, verse 12. So many examples that could be given. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul wrote of elect angels. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that he endured all things for the sake of the elect. John, in 2 John, verse 1, he wrote to the elect lady and her children. Some think it was a particular woman, while others think it's a metaphoric identification for a specific church. John ended his letter by saying, The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. 2 John verse 13. Interestingly, that word elect is even used for Christ. You see that in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6. He's identified as the cornerstone that the Father laid in Zion. And he's described as being not only precious, but elect. Now, he, of course, is the chosen one in a very unique way, distinct from the people that God has called from before the foundation of the earth, chosen from before the foundation of the earth to redeem. The last time the word elect is used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation to describe those who are with Jesus as called, chosen, and faithful. Revelation 17, verse 14. Just a quick note, if you went through the times in which the word elect or election is used, you just look at those references, you try to exhaust and find them all, you would get quite a doctrine of election just from looking at those words in the context in which they're found. You would find that the elect are a select group of people among the many who are called. Matthew 22, verse 14. They're protected by the power of God from apostasy even against the most convincing deceptions. They're scattered throughout the earth. They will be avenged by God. They all end up being justified by God. They are not elected according to their works, but according to God's call. Their election is, note this, very important. Their election is an election of grace. Romans 11, verse 5. They are individuals. I mean, over and over again, we see this is referring to, the word elect is referring to individuals. It's not just that God has ordained the church as the elect vehicle, and whoever wants to get into that vehicle will get to the destination of heaven. That's not how the Bible speaks about the elect. The elect are people who are chosen, at least with the references that we were just considering. It's very clear. And it could go on. They are characterized by faithfulness. They comprise the church, etc. 
But that brings us to an important question, even early on in our consideration of this topic. The question will arise, in light of the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that there are chosen individuals, that there are an elect company, that there is the doctrine of election, the question will arise, okay, what is the basis of someone's election? Now, some will say that the deciding vote is cast by an individual. Coming back to our opening consideration. They will say at the end of the day, God chooses those whom he knows will choose him. Therefore, election in their mind is conditional. It's conditioned upon the supposed foreknowledge of God to see somebody choosing him. Therefore, he chooses them. That would be conditional election. Or is election unconditional? Is it not conditioned upon, based upon, somebody's supposed exercise of faith or their human will? Is election then unconditional? I think very clearly the Bible teaches that election is unconditional. Unconditional election. That is the U in the acronym TULIP. Last week, or two weeks ago, we studied the T, total depravity. Tonight we come to unconditional election, the U in the acronym TULIP. And to provide you with a little bit of a definition as to what unconditional election means, here's the following. It means that God's electing or choosing a person unto salvation is not ultimately dependent upon any condition being met by that individual. It is an exercise of sovereign grace that is not dependent upon some foreknown reaction of the creature. It's not dependent upon some foreknown response, some foreknown exercise of faith, some foreknown exercise of the human will or reception of biblical truth. It is not conditioned upon any of those things. As we will see, this is the abundant witness of Scripture. Now, like the words total depravity, I told you two weeks ago, the words total depravity are liable to misunderstanding. People hear those words and they can very easily misunderstand what is being communicated by those words. Well, that can happen with unconditional election as well. So first, let's consider a couple of uh, examples of what unconditional election doesn't mean. Unconditional election does not mean that God's choice of individuals unto salvation is random or arbitrary. Unconditional election is not random election. It's not whimsical election. See, some people have this conception in their mind, which is not only erroneous, it's blasphemous, that it's as though God basically throws a dart at a spinning pinwheel with spots on that pinwheel that correspond to individuals. And you know what? Wherever it lands, that's where it lands. And whoever the dart lands upon, that's somebody I will elect. God's election is not without purpose. It's not random. It's not whimsical. It's not arbitrary. It's according to God's own purpose. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. If you want to build upon that, it's according to God's good pleasure. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the good pleasure of his will. And it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. We see that in Ephesians 1, 6. Now second, unconditional election does not mean that the conditions of salvation 
namely repentance and faith, do not have to be manifested in time for an individual to be saved. So when you hear unconditional election, it doesn't mean that there are people walking around the earth and they are elect even though they have no idea and never exercise saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or repentance towards God. Those conditions are conditions that God meets by his grace. We'll see more about that in a minute. So God meets those conditions by providing those individuals with grace to repent and faith to believe. But the elect will in time demonstrate repentance and they will demonstrate faith. Those, if you will, conditions for salvation. The means through which a person is justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So when we say unconditional election, we mean we're talking about God's choice from before the foundation of the world. That's not conditioned upon any foreknown reaction of the creature. But the conditions of faith and repentance will be met by his grace in time. So as to have an individual justified by his grace. Now, there are many who say that God's election of individuals is conditional. And that it's particularly conditioned upon foreseen faith. Some might nuance it in different ways. But I would think, and this is my opinion, that probably the most popular view among those who reject the doctrines of grace goes something like this. That God, as it has often been said, looks down the corridors of time and he sees those who would choose him, who would exercise faith, and he therefore chooses them. That's conditional election. Now, I want you to understand, you're going to understand more about the nature of unconditional election by understanding why that's wrong. So you're going to get now a little bit of a primer as to why unconditional election is biblical by understanding why conditional election, based upon, say, something like foreseen faith, is not. So the problems with that view are legion, for they are many. We'll consider four of them right now. First, This would contradict the abundance of scriptural texts that teach the doctrine of total depravity. If election was based upon foreseen faith, no one would be saved because there would be no faith to foresee. We see that via the doctrine of total depravity. Those who are in the flesh, remember Romans chapter 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Who are those who are in the flesh? They're distinct from those in Romans 8, 9. Christians who have the Spirit of God. So those who are in the flesh, the natural man left to himself, cannot please God. And we know, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if salvation were based upon foreseen faith, nobody would be saved because there would be no faith to foresee. You just go through the doctrine of total depravity, there's more examples that could be given. If no one seeks God, remember, per Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, per Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3, per Romans chapter 3, you could look at verses 10 through 12. If no one seeks God, if God were to look down the corridors of time and just leave man to himself, what he would see is no one seeking. No one seeking God. If man cannot understand the things of the spirit, the natural man, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, if God were to look down the corridors of time and leave man all to himself, all he would see is Futility of thinking, darkened thinking. He would see confusion and unbelief. If God did not elect individuals unto salvation, no one would be saved. 
because of our inherited sin and what it has done to us, our total depravity, the totality of who we are being affected by sin, because of our spiritual deadness, election must be unconditional because we would never meet the conditions. Revisit the lesson from two weeks ago just to see all the reasons why that is true. Second, another problem with believing that election is based upon foreseen faith is the clear testimony of the New Testament. Namely this, that both faith and repentance are gifts from God. Acts chapter 11, verse 18 says that God granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Repentance is a gracious gift from God. Paul told Timothy to correct those who are in opposition with humility, quote, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul told the Philippians, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. Quick note there, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted. That Greek word that's used there for granted, charizomai, it comes from the Greek word charis, which means grace. This word, charizomai, talks about a graciously given gift. Lavishing favor upon someone graciously. So again, to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ. So any foreseen faith and repentance per the scriptures would have to come from God. Do you see that? So election can't be based upon foreseen faith or foreseen repentance. Why? They are gifts from God. God is the one who gives them. They're not going to be found in the creature. It's the clear witness of scripture. Third, if election were based upon foreseen faith... Salvation would not be by grace alone. We would have to throw out one of the five solas. We'd have to throw out sola gratia. And by implication, you'd have to, if you think it through, you'd have to throw out some of the other five solas too. Now, I'd be okay with doing that and getting rid of some of the five solas if the Bible didn't teach them. But if the Bible does teach five solas, you don't want to throw out any of the five solas. And one of the solas is that we are saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear that a person is saved by the grace of God alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is of God's grace. Some people say, well, what's the antecedent to it? Is it faith or is it the whole salvation package? It's probably the latter, but either way, it doesn't matter because both come from God. The salvation package comes from God and faith is a gift from God. It all comes from God. This is reinforced, I would argue, that we're saved by grace alone. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 13, who received Christ? Remember John chapter 1, verse 12? As many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, who are those who received Christ? Verse 13 tells you, those who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. In other words, not by our own efforts. Nor the will of man. So it's not by an exercise of the will. 
either known from the past or performed in the present. It's not based upon human will. The new birth is not based upon human will. That's part of the problem with telling somebody, hey, if you pray this prayer or do something like this, we believe you just got born again as a result of doing that prayer. Because it's the work of God that regenerates a person. It's the work of God that opens a person's eyes. It's not a result of human willing or effort, but God's grace. Fourth, there is no text in the New Testament that says election is conditioned by a person's foreseen faith. It's just not there. But people will appeal to two verses. They'll appeal to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and they'll sometimes appeal to the opening two verses of 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where the word foreknowledge is used in both cases, we'll give our attention to um, Romans 8.29, where we see the word foreknew. Romans 8.29 reads, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, somebody who rejects the doctrines of grace and wants to say that salvation or election is based upon man's will and God knowing what man would do, they would say, see, it's right there. Look, it's right there in Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But notice what that verse does not say. It does not say, for whom he foreknew would choose him. It's not said there. It just said, for whom he foreknew. Very literally, the object of the verb foreknew refers to those That's the direct object of the verb. It's in the accusative case in Greek. So in other words, whom did God foreknow? That's the question you're asking. It's not what did God foreknow about these individuals. It's people that he foreknew. And it doesn't mean that he foreknew them just in having a kind of cognitive awareness of them being there. God has that about everybody. He knows everybody in that respect. But this is the language, the kind of language that connotes relationship. God told the people of Israel through Amos, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. It's the language of relationship. God speaks of knowing Abraham. You see it in the uh, NASB that God chose Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. The language is literally speaking of him knowing Abraham. But the NASB translators understand that the implication of that there is him having chosen Abraham. We remember earlier on in Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's not just talking about cognitive awareness. It's talking about an intimacy of relationship. That's how this word is repeatedly used. Now, you'll get some instances where it has a sense of foreordination. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, the context there, God set Jeremiah apart. Before he formed him in the womb, he knew him, and he set him apart and ordained him to be a prophet to the nations. But you often see the language connote relationship or a lack thereof. Think of some of the scariest words in the Bible. Jesus saying to those, I never knew you. This is the language of relationship. All that to say God's for knowing of an individual, it connotes God lovingly choosing them and setting his affection upon them. So those are four reasons why we would say election is not conditional. And if you understand those four reasons, you have a good understanding of why election is unconditional. But for the remaining portion of time that we have, let's just develop that a little bit further. And you can go through the Old Testament and you can see examples of people that are chosen 
Um, Abraham, chosen by God, chosen out of his pagan background and so on, and there's no hint that he earned it, deserved it, or merited it. You see Jacob and Esau, and God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau, and then by extension Israel over Edom. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to Romans 9. Then there's Israel. Out of all the nations in the world, God chose Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he elected Israel to be a people for himself, a people with whom he would enter into a covenant, reveal himself to, bring them into the promised land, and so on. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, essentially, that he set his love upon them. And it wasn't because of their righteousness. It was an outworking of his own purpose and faithfulness to the covenant he made with the patriarchs. But then, when you go to Deuteronomy 9, you get a little bit more insight as to why he chose them and why he was bringing them into the promised land. Watch the emphasis here. God is making it very clear to the children of Israel, it's not because of your righteousness. Watch how this is repeated in three verses. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness... The Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff-necked people. It's like, you get that? (laughs) Israel, you're entering the promised land, but it's not because of you. It's not because of your uprightness of heart. God made a promise to the fathers, to the patriarchs. There's wickedness that he's been patient with, but now he's going to judge. I'm bringing you into the promised land for those reasons. You go back to Deuteronomy 7. I set my affection upon you. You didn't earn it, deserve it, or merit it. It's sovereign, undeserved grace. Now we come to the New Testament. So what I want to do here in our time in the New Testament is I want to kind of bundle this in such a way that perhaps will be helpful for you by way of memorization. Rather than going through every text that we can go through, because there are many, I want to go through some of them and then provide you with some summaries that I think will help you remember uh, the verses that support this doctrine. Uh, Acts 13, verse 48. I'll start there briefly. There we're told, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Without going to the Greek grammar here, the grammar is set up in such a way that one thing necessarily happens before the other. The appointing happened before the believing. Now, I want to spend just a brief, maybe minute or two on this, because sadly there are some who would say the word appointed, because it's passive in the Greek. The word appointed should be understood as disposed themselves. One of the interesting things about voice in the Greek language is that when you have something in the passive voice, means you are the passive recipient of something being done to you. It could be, depends on the context, in the middle voice. Middle voice meaning you do something to yourself. 
right? Active would be you doing something to someone. Middle voice is you doing something to yourself. Passive is something being done to you. Whenever something's in the passive voice, you could say, well, maybe it could be in the middle voice. Here, the word in our translations over and over again, it's appointed, meaning God is the one who appointed individuals. But there are some who say, no, I think it should be in the middle voice that these individuals disposed themselves. They set themselves. Essentially, they appointed themselves to receive the eternal life. I think the problems with that are many. I think one that overlooks the context of the book of Acts, for instance. In the book of Acts, we are taught that grace is graciously granted from God. Acts 11, verse 18. To use the example of Lydia, Acts 16, verse 14. God opened her heart to receive the things spoken of by Paul. She couldn't dispose herself. God had to open her heart to receive that. Not to mention the fact that faith, as we've already seen, and we see this in Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8.9, faith is a gift of God. See a little bit later on in the book of Acts, Acts 18.29, that those who believed, believed through grace. So a person can judge themselves worthy of, unworthy of eternal life. You see that in Acts 13.46. But as many as received Christ were not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If a person disposed themselves, set themselves to receive eternal life, it's because God appointed them to eternal life. The rendering here, I would overwhelmingly argue, is proper. Romans 9.16. We'll come back to that in considering Romans 9 shortly. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. We'll come back to that in a moment. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Reading from the ESV. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And there are other verses that could be read. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but I'll call your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 for the sake of time. Speaking of God, Paul writes to Timothy, he is the one who, quote, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I went through those verses and I left out 2 Thessalonians 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 9. You could read those on your own. Because if you wanted a clear summation, a kind of clear summary statement as to how to communicate the doctrine of election, I think you just take some of those verses and you just put it together very clearly. You see what election is not according to and what it is according to. Election is not of him who wills or him who runs. That him who runs expression in Romans 9.16 connotes human exertion. It is not according to our works. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It is according to God's own purpose. Again, 2 Timothy 1.9. It's according to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians 1.5. And it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. You have that in your mind. And you have a great summation, a great summary of how to communicate the doctrine of election. It's not based upon these things. It is based upon these things. And this is essentially what we know. 
And what should it lead to, by the way? It should lead to us praising the glory of God's grace. We will talk a little bit more about this when we go to Romans 9 in a moment. But some people get so frustrated with the doctrine of election. And they have a reaction that's so the antithesis of what it ought to be. The doctrine of election is meant for us to praise God and say, what greatness, what grace. I see how dead I was in transgressions and sins. I see how unable I was to receive the things of God in my natural state. I see how rebellious I was that I wouldn't seek God. I wouldn't understand the things of God. Yet God loved me and set his affection upon me before the foundation of the world. What grace is this? If you didn't elect me and if you didn't open my eyes, I wouldn't be saved. Nobody would be saved. And some people get so caught up in the question, well, why didn't God save everybody? Why didn't he elect everybody? The answer to that is seen in part in Romans 9. God puts different attributes on display via his justice and via his grace. But we should be thankful that he has elected to save anybody because nobody deserves it. We all deserve divine justice. And if God lavishes mercy upon some and not all, That doesn't make him unjust. He is merciful. Now briefly, um, if you look in your notes, uh, section 3, letter E, I have a section there that's entitled, Other New Testament Texts Characterized or Categorized That Support Unconditional Election. See, these are other verses that you could use to support the doctrine of election. I'll just go through these briefly. Number one, the new birth is not of the human will, but it's of God. Right? It's not of him who wills. It's in the will of man, it's according to the will of God. So it supports the doctrine of unconditional election. Faith is a gift from God. You see the verses there, Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8-9. Salvation is a gift from God with no grounds for boasting. Now I want to emphasize that part of Ephesians 2.8-9. Because if election were based upon some foreseen response of the creature, there would be a grounds for boasting you would be able to say, you would say, I wouldn't want to say it. It would be wrong. I wouldn't want to do this. But you could. And if, and if your doctrine of election was conditional and was true, it wouldn't be a lie. That you just happened to exercise your will in a better way than your neighbor who isn't elect. So you could boast. I wouldn't boast, but you could. And it would be accurate according to your view of election. So, salvation being a gift from God with no grounds for boasting supports the doctrine of unconditional election. Again, as I've told you already, number four, repentance is a gift from God. I think the next one, number five, should in large measure end the debate. Believing Jews, for instance, are identified as part of a remnant according to the election of grace. Everyone who is saved is part of an election of grace. Coming to Jesus is granted by the Father, number six, right? Jesus said, no one can come to me, right? You see it in John chapter six, verse 65 as well, unless it's granted to him by the Father. Number seven, those who believe, believe because they are Christ's sheep given to him by the Father. Right? When Jesus is speaking to some, they did not believe because they were not his sheep. So the believing emerged from being a sheep that God had chosen to be a sheep. And then number eight, the doctrine of total depravity necessarily implies unconditional election if a person is going to be saved. You go back to the message from two weeks ago and you look at all of those verses, that mountain of verses, and it supports the doctrine of unconditional election. Because if total depravity is true, and I would argue it is true, then unconditional election, as a consequence, has to be true. 
<laughs> if it's not the ice cream truck, it's work on a house or something, or somebody getting dental work with a really powerful drill. <laughs> I want to briefly, I want to end our time with considering this before we get to Q&As, with briefly calling your attention to Romans 9. Romans 9. I want to say a few things on the front end uh, rather briefly. Uh, Romans 9 concerns the salvation of individuals and not merely God's sovereign choice of nations. I think this is one of the best chapters to see the doctrine of unconditional election. Now sometimes those of an Arminian view will say, well, Romans 9 speaks about God's election of nations as opposed to individuals. One big problem with that is the context. You go back to Romans chapter 8, we're talking about the justification and the election of individuals. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. We're talking about God electing individuals. But then you go into Romans 9, and we're still talking about individuals. Paul had sorrow and continual, continual heaviness in his heart for his kinsmen according to the flesh, for fellow Israelites who hadn't believed the gospel. So the whole context leading up to Romans 9 is dealing with individuals. And then God's going to illustrate the doctrine of election through individuals. Through Jacob, through Esau, through Pharaoh. He's going to illustrate that doctrine through individuals. So to just say, no, 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 this is about nations, this isn't about individuals, I think does quite a disservice to the context, to say the least. Um, so the language concerns salvation of individuals. Um, and now, just to kind of give us a little bit of a running start here, um, Paul's communicating the grief that he had in his heart for those who had not received Christ. And there were some in Israel who had received Christ by grace, but there were many who didn't. And he makes the point that God's word had not failed. God had always made sovereign distinctions. He illustrated that with Abraham's seed and the promises being reckoned through Isaac. That's verses 7 through 9. But now he will illustrate this reality further and the unconditional nature of election will be clearly unpacked. Just really quick, if you were to look in the verses leading up to this, it's similar to Paul's argumentation in Romans 11. He says in Romans 9, 6, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So he has sorrow that some of his Jewish brethren, according to the flesh, aren't saved, but he's saying, look, God's word didn't fail. Spiritual Israel is being saved. True Israel is being saved. He's thinking about individuals. A portion of Jews among the whole of the nation. Spiritual Israel among national Israel. Now he's going to illustrate the unconditional nature of election in the verses that follow. Beginning at verse 10, I'm going to read through verse 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac... For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now note first that God's election took place before either Jacob or Esau were born. The difference between Jacob and Esau was God's sovereign choice. Some will say, well, Esau turned out to be a profane man. Have you forgotten that Jacob was a deceiver? You just read through the account in Genesis, right? And you're not saying, okay, well, Jacob there is the good guy, and that's why he got saved, and Esau's the bad guy, and that's why he didn't get saved or elected. 
God makes it very clear here. If he wanted to make that point, if you want to make the point that it was based upon some foreseen betterness in Jacob as opposed to Esau, he could have said that. But what does he say in the very text? He says that the purpose of election is this, that it's not according to works, but of him who calls. Or the nature of election, I should say. He even says, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So I think that's really important for you to see what God says there. It's not according to works. It's not according to some foreknown good or some, or some foreknown evil, but God's sovereign purpose. And now watch next the anticipated objection. Paul is thinking that people will hear this argument and they're going to object to it. Watch what the objection is. It's key. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. That question is so important. If you had an Arminian view of election, this question would not make any sense. Because you would say, there's no unrighteousness. God just based it upon the foreseen faith of Jacob as opposed to Esau. So Jacob got the good and Esau got the bad. There's no unrighteousness. God just rendered unto them what each one deserved. But he asks this question because he's anticipating that people understand what he's saying. If election is rooted in the creator and not the creature, if it's not according to works but to him who calls, you could anticipate that very protest. Romans 9.14, and the question here is key. The question tells you that Paul is talking about sovereign grace, rendered to one undeserving one, but not rendered to another undeserving one. That's the key. It's underscored in the following verse, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Again, the matter between Jacob and Esau wasn't a matter of superiority of one person's character over another. Verse 15 is key. It was a matter of God's mercy. That was the difference. Both were undeserving. One got mercy and the other did not. One got justice. The other one got mercy. Is there unrighteousness with God for doing that? No. Certainly not. God forbid This is not true. If God wanted to give everybody justice, he could. He's not obliged to save anybody. But because God chose to save some and not all, that doesn't make him unjust. That makes him merciful. Well, now we come to the summary statement of unconditional election, Romans 9.16. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. If there was a verse that would make it abundantly clear that God's election is not based upon human will, it's this one. It clearly says, it's not of him who wills. As to reinforce the point, it says, it's not of him who runs. It's not a matter of human exertion. Then we get the other side of the coin in Romans 9.17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Quick note here, God is glorified in unconditional election. He's glorified in showing mercy to undeserving sinners. But he is also glorified in reprobation, in rejecting others, and giving them justice and not mercy, and using their wickedness for his sovereign purposes. Such was the case with Pharaoh. God would put his power on display in a rather unique, redemptive, historical way through Pharaoh.
through Pharaoh. And again, we have another summary statement here that shows that it's not about one person being more innately righteous or receptive than someone else. Romans 9.18 says, Therefore, he has mercy upon whom he will, and whom he will, he hardens. Part of the mystery of God is that in his sovereignty, for those who are rebels against his will by nature and by choice, he will nonetheless sovereignly superintend sinlessly even their actions like he did Pharaoh. It's the other side of the coin, reprobation. And it's hard for us as creatures to get our minds around that. I mean, it's in the scriptures. 1 Peter 2.8 speaks about this. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. Jude 4 states, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. Judas was the son of perdition in fulfillment of scripture. I close with just asking this question, why then does God elect individuals? Why does he even elect individuals at all? I'll provide you with a few reasons briefly as we close. One, I'm going to give you that summary statement again. Remember, it's not according to him who wills or him who runs. It's not according to our works. It's according to God's own purpose. It's according to the good pleasure of his will and it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Unconditional election displays the free, great, undeserved mercy of God. And it should prompt praise and not a questioning of his character. Furthermore, God's election appears to be inextricably connected to the love the Father has for the Son. Um, You could go into this in further detail in the message I taught called The Eternity Before Christmas. The Father has given people to the Son as a gift. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. When Jesus is talking about his sheep, he says, my father who has given them to me. Jesus says he gives eternal life to all that the father has given him and so on. Isn't it amazing to think that God, out of his love for his eternally begotten son, elected a people? So what was driving election? What drove that undeserved grace? Well, one of the things that drove that grace was the love that the father had for the son to give the son a people, to give the son a bride. Why has God elected individuals? To display His glory by conforming people to the image of His Son. He so loves His Son. He sees the beauty of His Son. The express image of His person. And He saves sinners, predestines them to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 So as to display the beauty of His character and grace and so on. And this election, please remember, is joined to the love that God has for His people. One rendering of the end of Ephesians 1, verse 4, into verse 5, goes like this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose or the good pleasure of his will. You open your Bible, beginning of the year perhaps, January 1st, you see those words, let there be light. And you as a Christian, you could say, before those words were spoken... Before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon me. In, if you will, if you could speak of eternity in categories of time, in eternity past as it were, he set his love upon me. And in love he predestined me. Long before the words, let there be light, were ever spoken. Oh, how that should stir us to rejoice in his grace. And that love, by the way, as you know, he would demonstrate in time. To use language from the Apostle Paul, God demonstrated his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for this grace. Thank You for such undeserved favor lavished upon us, Lord. Thank You for opening our eyes, raising us out of our spiritual deadness, and loving us from before the foundation of the world. Father, I pray that the truth that is set forth in Your Word will provide clarity to all of us. And I pray, Father, that it will prompt praise from our lips. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.